Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Conversations on Conversations, where each week we explore a topic to help us have more powerful conversations with ourselves and others. I'm your host, Sarah Null Wilson, and joining me today is my dear friend, colleague, leader who inspires me, Beth Shelton. So let me tell you a little bit about Beth, and then we'll start digging into the topic we'll be exploring today, which is how do we create work and culture and benefits to really support and serve the whole human. Um, Beth is one of my favorite leaders. She is the exec- chief executive officer of Girl Scouts of Greater Iowa, overseeing all operations for 13,000 members in portions of Iowa, Nebraska, and South Dakota. She has shared her passion message, passionate message of recognizing the human side of workplace culture and benefits from coast to coast. She has received national accolades for her innovative focus on employee wellness, highlighted recently on platforms ranging from Good Morning America, CNN, Working Mothers Magazine, to Washington Post, USA Today, and The Today Show. Beth is persistently curious, an avid reader, and uses solution-focused leadership to encourage radical innovation. She holds an MBA from Drake University, recently completed the Artificial Intelligence Certificate Program at MIT. Real curious to hear about that. Beth is also a lifelong amputee and also serves on the board for the Iowa Amputee Golf Association, which raises scholarships for families affected by trauma and impact of limb loss. She has a lifelong love of sports, having been a three-time collegiate MVP in tennis. She loves her vin- driving her vintage Jeep with the top off, just took up guitar lessons, and is enjoying the journey of visiting every national park. Welcome to the show, Miss Beth Shelton. Oh my goodness, it's such an honor to be here. Thank you so much. How, uh, what else do you want people to know about you? Oh my goodness. Well, I have three children. I'm a single parent. And so the juggle, uh, the juggle and the struggle and the joy, all the above is real. (laughs) And so, you know, I'm pulled a lot of directions and I have a lot of interests and a lot of passion. And, uh, I'm just excited to get to talk about all the things. Okay. First, like your kids clearly are taking after you with all of their like multi-passionate disciplines. I haven't seen you to congratulate new Miss Teen Iowa or Miss Iowa. It was Miss Iowa, right? National American Miss Junior Teen. My daughter yeah. uh, was just, you know, participated about two weeks ago and she'll be going to nationals this fall. So thank you. I will pass that along. Yeah, that's so exciting. Thank I'm you. no, I'm, I'm so, um, so excited to have this conversation because once we get into it, people will you know, understand uh, why why I was so eager to to talk about the work you're doing. But first, take us back. What you know? Talk to us about just like what was your journey um, to bring you to this point? Not only from the standpoint of doing the work you do with Girl Scouts, but also from a standpoint of you know what has really shaped you as a leader. Well, it's, it's a, a big question. It is. And I, it's always hard to talk about because it's not like I'm there. It's not like you hit yeah. the mark and you're like, cool, okay, I, I got it. You know, it's such a journey. I think that the the most pivotal moments when I think back, how did I get here and what shaped me most? Like anyone, I've had great leaders and I've had um, leaders that I learned a lot from in terms of maybe missteps. And when I got the job at Girl Scouts about eight years ago, I I had a lot to learn. I was really green and I really hadn't led people. I'd been a high performer Mm -hmm. on the front lines, but I really hadn't done a lot of leadership. So I took a step back and thought about all of the um, leaders that I'd had and the ones that I 
felt like I performed the highest better, not the ones I liked the most, um, not even the jobs I liked the most, but which ones really brought out the best in me as a performer. And I tried to think about, okay, what attributes did they have? What did they share in common? And then the, on the, on the flip side, the ones, you know, where I was probably, um, less engaged as an employee, what did they have in common? And I started, um, thinking through what kind of leader I wanted to be and, kind of building or, you know, building that plane as I was flying it as the CEO of an organization. Um, so I learned a lot also from my mom. I was raised by a single mom and, uh, she has a very servant heart. She was a leader herself Mm -hmm. in corporate America. And I always saw the way she treated people. I think about it now, like, you know, if you're familiar with Ted Lasso, he's very much sort of this authentic, earnest servant leader. And I kind of think my mom was viewed that way years later, she has been retired for 20 years when people see her in public, they'll, they'll say, Oh my gosh, you were my favorite and you always cared about me. And so, you know, it's hard not to hopefully pick up some of that, you know, when I think about leadership. Yeah. How do you feel like, you know, as somebody who is a steward and a student of leadership, what have you observed and or experienced has shifted for you? Particularly because I know that we are seeing such a shift over the last four years, mm-hmm. right? With everything going on from uh, how the world is changing, from what we experience with the pandemic, racial injustice, the and now rising technology changing. What are some of the the challenges and changes you've experienced from a leadership perspective over the last few years? So much. Um, I I started to feel like we were doing great work, you know, in those first four years of my job. And like you said, you know, sort of in the pandemic area era, it was, it was a real catalyst for major changes for organizations, clearly for the world, clearly, but um, organizations are made up of human beings. And so I think Mm -hmm. from the very most basic human level, I fundamentally changed the person I was four years ago doesn't even exist. Um, so we're all sort of familiar with like gender reveal parties. I kind of think about it now, like we need like personality reveal parties. Like who are <laughs> we today? That. Like what yes. happened? You know, I've seen some stuff, right? We yeah. all have. <laughs> so um, I face the, the biggest hurdles I've ever faced as a human being in the last mm-hmm. four years. And I think that inherently shapes your perspective. I I think I always leaned toward being a bit more of a servant, empathetic leader, but certainly I didn't, I wasn't very well versed in topics around mental health um, or sobriety or anxiety or suicidal ideation. I mean, those are just the, the tip of the iceberg of things that I've learned a lot about in the last four years. Not that I'm an expert, but things that, um, came into my awareness and my perspective, not just from my own first person experience as a human, but things I need to be aware of and not just aware of, but create systems um, and processes that really help support people in those Mm -hmm. really fundamental lanes. And in those ways, I changed a lot as a leader. I've evolved a lot and my eyes have been opened a lot. What would you say? I can't help but ask you this. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, because I, 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 I love everything that you're talking about. And, and the thing that I admire about how you have led and continue to try to lead is the awareness of the system pieces of it, that, that it isn't just enough to say, how can I care more deeply for team members, but systemically, what are the policies we need to put into place? What would you say to the people who are in positions and power and authority who um, 
maybe still don't see the value of caring for their people because that does it still exist. I mean, we hear it, we see it. What, like, what would you? What What are the lessons you've learned, or what's the the? Um, I don't want to say output. That sounds mm-hmm. so transactional, but by creating and being so intentional in how you're designing the organization and the culture and the policies, what what are the results that you've experienced? Um, by putting such an intense focus on the humans? Uh, a couple of things. And thank you for saying that. Um, I, I would say a couple of things. First and foremost, um, that it's not enough to just care and have intention. Um, I think we share this in that I don't actually care a lot about what someone's intentions are. What I care a lot about is what you see and what the impact is. And so as mm-hmm. a leader or a friend or a peer, I don't really need to know what someone's motivations are very often. And I don't need them to know mine. What I need them to see is action. What am I actually Mm -hmm. doing? So you, I don't think it's enough to say I deeply care about people. What does that, what does that mean? You know, you can deeply care about people and screw up a lot. So that's not alone enough, right? So I think impact and action are the most important thing, first of all. But secondly, I'll give you a really tangible example. When we rolled out yeah. Infants at Work, which was a, a benefit that went, went viral and got a lot of attention uh, back in 2019, um, and it had to do with um, supporting parents in the workplace and um, give the, gave them some autonomy and choice if they wanted to choose to bring their babies to work with them after they came back from parental leave. And um, what I would hear people say as I started to, it got some attention and I would speak at conferences about this. And people would say, oh, yeah, well, I had an employer that allowed that or allowed me to bring my infant carrier seat in 15 years ago or or do this one thing or do that one thing. And they would give me one-off examples. Mm-hmm. And the problem with one-off examples or allowing something is that it's not a systematic process. And if it's not a mm-hmm. systematic process, first of all, it's not consistent. It's mm-hmm. seldom scalable and you don't have good, clean data. And if you don't have good, clean data to track it, how are you going to make it scalable to other organizations? And so by having, and it becomes subjective when it's a one-off, right? So if we're having to make subjective decisions about when we do and don't allow employees to do things or not do things, and it just depends, um, all of a sudden it can get, we can get our biases in there and we mm-hmm. can get into the... We're, we're not always really great, reliable witnesses to our own intent, you know, to our own motivators. And so it takes that element out when we create policies that are consistent, that people know they can rely on, um, and that they're fair and equitable. And then they can also be scalable. And then now, now, because we had that foresight, four years later, we can say we have really clean data of four years of this great program. And then we can show the ROI, the business ROI, the economic impact for our organization. And that's just not the case if you're just, if you're allowing one off things to happen. So you can care about people one off. It's not inherently bad, but if you want to have scalable, impactful change in organizations and then potentially across other organizations, across sectors, um, to do our part so that for the enterprise of human beings in the workplace, mm-hmm. then it's important to have scalable systems. Yep. I love that. <laughs> just yep. like, yep. I just keep, pre- keep preaching, Beth. I'm just yes. going to sit here and just give you a platform because, yes. um, so let's, so let's talk about infants at work mm-hmm. and let's talk about what it is. So here's, okay. I want you to explain what it is because it's pretty unique yeah. and incredible and then I'm curious to know the journey to what got to that point, okay. right? Because I imagine you got a lot of pushback. So take it away. 
infants at work. So infants at work is one of our many benefits that are sort of innovative and maybe radical that allows um, any of our full-time employees to bring their infants to work with them when they return from parental leave. We offer 12 weeks of paid parental leave for all mothers, fathers, guardians, um, adoptive, foster, et cetera. And after Mm -hmm. you return, after 12 weeks of paid leave, you have the option if you would like to bring your infant back to work with you up until age six months. At age six months, um, we have a little graduation ceremony, that little caps and gowns, uh, and it's really great. And so it's just one added layer that gives um, parents some and caregivers some autonomy, some flexibility as they transition in a really, a, it's a big season of life uh, mm-hmm. at that time for all parties involved. Um, it gives just a little more padding, a little more support. And um, we got to this decision. It's not like we were sitting around like, hey, you know, it'd be great. Like, let's have babies at work, you know? Um, In fact, that's the opposite (laughs) of how I felt. That's the opposite. Uh, So in 2018, um, we had seven or eight employees. We have about 60 full-time employees, seven or eight who were expecting children at the same time. And one of them came to me and said, hey, I'm really nervous about having my first child. I've been talking to my midwife and she thinks it'd be great if I could bring my baby to work with me when I return. Um, So, you know, we've had got this culture. You're always saying, you know, bring our ideas forward. What do you think? Mm -hmm. And in my head, Sarah, I was a hard no. I was like, that's that's absurd. You know, have you ever met a human child? Like, that's not going to work. We're a real workplace, you know, Mm. but I didn't say that. Um, I have learned some humility. I have learned that not only do I not always know the best answer, even if I think I do, um, I don't always know the best answer. And secondly, people like to feel valued. They like to feel heard. And so instead of saying absolutely not, I said, let me, you know, that's interesting. Um, I, let me think about that. And let me do some research and let me reflect. And I did that. I reflected, I researched, and I, I found some really compelling information about the barriers that parents and caregivers face upon the return to work. Um, the, the, the largest factor attributing to the wage gap by gender is parenthood. So it's not that right. women don't face a, a, wage, a wage gap regardless. They do, but the, it's mostly attributed to becoming a parent. And then all of these other things about caregiving and the burden and all these things mm-hmm. it generally tends to fall on women, not entirely as a demographic group, the data says. Um, and we are an organization that are really for women and girls. And how do we, how do we show equality? How do we show workplace equality? And so, all of a sudden, I got all these feelings about if, if we're not going to get some skin in this game, if we're mm. not going to start to systematically try to change this behavior, who will? Like, who mm. better is equipped to mm. get sort of radical about what it might mean? And, you know, we tend to tell ourselves a story. Here's what I discovered about sort of our culture, and I think a lot of workplace cultures, is we tend to start with, like, the fear or the reason we shouldn't. So if you were to talk about a radical idea, like maybe maybe our whole workforce should work remotely or maybe we should allow babies at work. Immediately, we tend to go, well, here's all the reasons we shouldn't. Here's all the risks, all the reasons it might not work. And I, from a liability standpoint, you have to sometimes pose those questions. But what if we turned around and said, what if I said we had to? You know, mm. what if we had to help support parents and caregivers? Um, and then if you take that question to your team, what if I said we had to do it? How, what would the plan need to look like? Usually it starts with, well, we shouldn't do it because da, da, da. And then I'll be like, yeah, okay, well, that's not what I asked, is it? What I asked is, what if we had to do it? And once we can sort of free ourselves and say, okay, if, well, if we had to do it, Beth, we shouldn't. But if we had to, here's what the plan would need to look like. And all of a sudden, the, the handcuffs are off 
And these incredibly talented, smart people who work, you know, work in our organizations are like, because they know best. They know our culture. They know our barriers. They know our resources. They're like, well, we'd have to figure out how long can babies cry? Who can hold them? What's the liability? Where do diapers go? Da, 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 da. And before you know it, we had a 10 page document outlining all of the questions you would need to know. We got it, you know, ran by our, our um, insurance carriers and we got the liability forms and we talked to our staff and we had town halls and what kind of concerns would you have? Because it's not just about mm. um, systematically how could we do it? Um, should we do it? Is it a fit with our people? Um, yeah. You know? And what about um, an employee who might be struggling with fertility? What about an employee who gets Mm. migraines and doesn't want to be around Mm. children? Like there's all sorts of other things you have to think about. It's not just the perspective of supporting the caregiver. It's the perspective of the other people in the organization. So we just had to be really thoughtful about all of those pieces. And then we rolled it out in January of 19. And it's been incredible for our organization. It doesn't mean that it was a home run with every single um, you know, stranger on the internet. That's certainly not the case. Uh, often they don't know, you know, all the ins and outs. We would, um, it's been incredible for our organization and for our people. There's, there's, there's so many lessons of leadership in everything you just shared, right? The, just starting at the beginning of your willingness to be changed, your willingness to have your mind changed, um, the understanding of the power of people feeling heard, the connection of, you know, I love that the team member was like, you always say we can do this, so I'm I'm going to do it. And right, and there's a little bit, and sometimes we see in organizations where who they say they are is not who they actually are, right? Mm-hmm. The words on the wall do not match the actions on the hall. Um, and then, and then the, the exploration and, and the inclusion of voices of, right, doing town halls and talking about it and, and not just, oh, we're going to do this or no, we're not going to do this, but we're actually going to wrestle with this and have the conversations we need to have so that I would imagine so that regardless of where you landed as an organization, you would feel good about it. Um, there's so many really beautiful lessons that I just want to highlight of like that's what leadership looks like, right? How do we engage people? How do we be open to to new perspectives? I really love that practice of and I wrote down, so if we had to do it, if we had to do it, how, how do we do it? Like let's just force ourselves to go, okay, like what do we need to think about? More with Beth Shelton in a moment. What was that moment like? I'm so curious. I mean, you and I have known each other for Mm -hmm. a few years, but I've never gotten to ask you. Like, what was the moment like when it got rolled out and the first baby came? You know, what was it like for the organization? But then I'm also curious to know what was going through your head as the leader who was, it it was and slash is a very radical concept of we're going to have, we're going to have babies in the workplace and, Mm -hmm. and, and understand that we're taking a stand that may create a culture that other people may go, I don't know that that's the culture for me. So what, like, what, take me back to 2019 when it became official and the first baby physically rolled through the door. <laughs> right. Right. And what was that like? Well, it, it was all the things. It was exciting because in tandem, you know, unintentionally, we didn't know 
that all of this national media attention would start start to happen, but it did. And it happened by accident. I wrote a Facebook post in January of 2019, and it was meant to be more of a, hey, like, show us some grace, right? If you're calling into our offices mm-hmm. or if you're stopping in, you might hear a baby crying. We're trying this out. We want to support people. But that post kind of went viral. So you have all this sort of external attention happening. And then internally you have, you know, and because of that, we were getting donations like, um, you know, high chairs and toys and people were, you know, sending companies were sending things. So you kind of had this flurry of activity externally, but then internally you could see the impact and the excitement. Mm. It just happens to be a color baby number one, because she was the first one in January, um, but it's Finley. Um, and she um, just happened to be this extraordinarily calm, happy baby. And so of course, you know, it was just really fun to get to have her in meetings. She happened to be um, affiliated mm. with the executive team. So I got to spend a lot of time with her and to see this parent also really benefit mm. joyfully at the opportunity to choose this path, you know, for, for her family, if she wanted to. And, um, of course, baby number one got a lot of attention around the office and things. And we really framed it up because, you know, I get a lot of questions like, what about productivity? Um, mm. well, first of all, this, um, this benefits not forever and ever and ever they graduate at six months. But um, we really put a lot of conversation and transparency in place with each employee who participates. And we do a plan uh, and we very openly say to them, the expectations of productivity are not, um, that is not on your shoulders. We are here. We created this benefit to support you and Mm. allow you this transition time. And um, if you, you know. It's sort of, I guess what I'm saying is it's sort of assumed that productivity, it might dip a little bit, right? There might be times that they're stepping out of meetings or um, a little bit distracted and okay. Like we just like peacefully started with and okay. Because what we found that first year is the employee would always be saying, I'm I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry. sorry. I'm so sorry. I need to step out. I'm so sorry. They're fussing. I'm so sorry. And we would just immediately say, no, no, no. Like we you know, we are here for this. We are in, we are in this with you. Mm. And that's what it means to support the humans, you know, that you don't have to like strip your humanity off when you walk through the door or your little tiny human off (laughs) when you walk through the door. That's kind of part of, part of the gig. I just love it all. It was really I, you know. fun. It was really fun. It was a lot of pressure as well. Sure. Because a lot yeah. of organizations were, um, I think it, I think it could come off and certainly not intentionally, but as we talked about intentions don't always matter. Mm-hmm. It could come off that, that I might've, or we might've been on a soapbox saying like other organizations sure. should do this. And that is not the case. I am not saying other organizations should allow infants at work. What I do unapologi- unapologetically say is other organizations um, should look thoughtfully at how they support people, what that means for their people and what the, what the needs are for their people and that the business case is there for the organization. So I am very unapologetic about that. It doesn't mean it's infants at work. I mean, the benefits yeah. that we provide and we have are a good fit for our system, our resources, our culture, our people, our mission. But if the mission and people and resources are different somewhere else, what can they do? But I am yeah. pretty unapologetic about equality and um, I do think things like paid parental leave are must-haves. And so I think, you know, there's a little bit of pressure or sometimes people pointing the finger or saying, well, that's easy for you to say, you know, you're whatever, insert thing, you support women or you're a nonprofit. And I'm like, first of all, none of this is easy. There's no part of this. There's not one day in the past year that we have been fully staffed 
because of accommodating paid parental leaves. And when we're not fully staffed, other people take on that workload. So it's not easy, but yeah. it can be not easy and it can still be right. Um, yeah. And I think mm. it's right. So sometimes I'm unapologetic about that, but it can be a high pressure situation. And the internet can be mean. <sighs> the internet can be really mean. I, I'd love to share one lesson I learned from that. Yeah. The day the Today Show did the story, it was about, um, it was roughly late February. So, you know, fast forward five or six weeks after we rolled this out, they had gotten wind, they came and recorded for two or three days. It was great. And they aired the story. And then our chief marketing officer comes into my office that day. She's like, hey, you know, real, great news, Beth. Awesome. Uh, the story aired uh, on TV and then they put it on social. So that's really great. Um, by the way, don't read the comments. And I'm like, wait, what? Mm. And she's mm. like, yeah. So if you're like the central figure in a national story, what are you going to do? Right. <laughs> you're going to read the comments. You're going to shut your door and read the comments. And, you know, of course, 95% of them were great, right? Um, but there was one in particular. I'm not going to call her out by name, but she is um, she is a doctor that works with children. So she is, her specialty, her profession in life is working with children, okay? And uh, she had a particularly harsh statement and at the end of it was like, you know, how in the world could any organization think this is a good idea to have children in the workplace? It's not equipped for babies. Bravo. Whoever had that brain fart was her exact quote mm. at the end. And I was like, mm. oh man, like, and I'm like, oh man, I'm the brain fart lady now, right? Like that's, that's, yeah. I'm her. So here's what I want to say. If I had handed her my yardstick of it being the right decision or my self-worth or my esteem or my ability to lead that would have been a pretty dire situation. Mm. But here's what I want to say. One year later, I happened to go back and check this person's social media, this strange, this internet stranger, right? Um, and she was posting about how grateful she was that her organization um, was finally willing and allowing children at work because mm. her perspective had changed because mm. what happened? The pandemic hit. And when the pandemic hit, all sorts of professionals were faced hurdles about caregiving. And all of a sudden, she faced some hurdles in her own life, right? And saw the hurdles with her peers about caregiving with the pandemic. And all of a sudden, her workplace said, okay, yes, children can come to work because of XYZ. Now, her perspective greatly changed. The variables in her life changed. But at the end of the day, we shouldn't, like, that's a great example of we shouldn't allow our leadership vision, hand our yardstick of, of what our vision is to somebody else, because honestly, they can't see it the same way. Their perspective is different. Yeah. And it was a good lesson for me not to allow too many outside sources. Like if we know what our North Star is, and I think we're pretty clear on that. Uh, I feel pretty clear on that as a human and as a leader. Uh, I'm not going to, I'll take input. I want to listen to feedback, but I'm not going to allow a naysayer to derail me because they have a different variables in their workplace or in their life. I I mean, there's so much, you have so much clarity and conviction when you say that, you know, of just like, I'm not saying this, but this is where I am going to be unapologetic about. And, and that idea of being really clear about your North Star as a company, and, and particularly how that impacts your culture and how you show up, I see so often companies struggle with that. They struggle with um, having the conviction behind who they are, having the conviction behind what they're going to do, either because they don't know what it feels like. They don't know what it looks like to have that kind of conviction. Um, or they, you know, like sometimes it's like, yeah, 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 that sounds good. Well, well, yeah. I mean, I've never met, I've never met a leader. I'm pausing. Hold on. I'm going through my like right, archive right. now before I said say this. I haven't met many leaders, <laughs> I'll say this, 
who wouldn't say like, no, I care deeply about my people and I would do right, like whatever mm-hmm. I can to support them. And I think there's something really powerful in being really clear about this is who we are and this is who we stand for. Because when you have that conviction, like I, I'm, fir- I'm a firm believer that when we have clarity, right, whether that's our values, our, you know, like mm-hmm. um, our North Star, that clarity can give us conviction. And when we have that conviction, that gives us courage, right? So by being clear about that, and I think there's something really beautiful. I'm just hearing your voice and, and how you talk about that. How, so then how has that evolved for you? You know, what are some of the other ways? And we don't necessarily need a list out, like, here's all the benefits, but, but how, how did that then shape the conversations you, because let me finish my thought and then I'll tag onto it. How did it shape and change the kind of conversations you now have as an organization of what's possible? Because I could imagine that that was sort of a, that was a real linchpin moment of, well, if we can figure that out, what else kind of what else is on the the table for us to figure out? And so I'm curious to know from that point, and then obviously, yeah, pandemic hit and we all had to figure out and um, shift and uh, figure out how to take care of ourselves and take care of each other. So how how did how has the conversation shifted, um, and what has continued to emerge um, as you think about uh, the evolution of how you take care of the humans? Yeah, um, I think one what it did, you know, unintentionally is it helped us build a culture of trust that not only. Mm-hmm. Um, do our employees, do our team members trust that leadership is really going to listen and maybe take radical steps if, if it fits our organization and it helps, helps support where we're going. But it also helps, I think, leadership trust that um, the people are going to do what they say they're going to do, that people are going to mm-hmm. rally behind when we create a plan, like people are going to rally and have it. And that became so important in the pandemic area because it, that trust, first of all, you know, we started the day that we sort of closed our, our public facing operations, if you will, because of the pandemic was mid-March, give or yeah. take, you know, March 17th or 18th. Um, the next day we were having, of course, internal town halls on, on Zoom and saying things like, we are not, the last thing we will do is downsize the people, the last thing. So we will look at everything else first. And um, here's our assurance that the people are still number one, like the taking care of our people is number one. And I think that trust was there. People heard that. Mm, and what mm. what that meant is they stayed engaged and they they trusted the organization and they did their jobs and they, we all pivoted. We all, you know, changed our ways of work. Um, and then I think the things that we faced as human beings evolved so much at that time. We certainly saw, you know, as a collective you know, um, culture, people across the country and like probably across the world, but certainly across the country, uh, a big increase in depression, loneliness, Mm -hmm. anxiety, suicidal ideation, addiction. And all of a sudden that meant that when we support people, that looks really different now, you know, we have to be really mindful of, um, mental wellbeing and, um, equality and racial injustice and things that maybe weren't the top of the list of our conversation points pre-pandemic. Not that they shouldn't have been, but they right. weren't, right? Other things, other fires, other other big priorities were happening. And all of a sudden, those are the things that were happening. And it built a lot of trust, I think, with our people that we 
work hard and listen hard. Like you said, we don't need to go through a list of all the benefits we have. Many are radical things from, you know, paid leave for, for miscarriage or, um, you know, we have, we have paid leave for, mm. um, everyone's personal, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion journey, you know, so everyone mm. gets paid time off to explore their own DEI journeys. In addition to all of the resources we have at work, paid leave for, for caregiving, for, um, the mental well-being of others or oneself, because what I don't want is I don't want to create a culture where people have to burn through their PTO just to be a human, right? Especially mm. if certain demographics are more likely to burn through PTO. So for, for example, we know data-wise that women are more likely to use PTO as a demographic group for things like caregiving, um, you know, household duties, um, in, you know, the tragic case of things like miscarriage. But then what happens is then they don't have PTO balances to do those engaging bucket filling things. And so I, if we want a fulfilled, engaged workforce, like let's make sure we give them the time to do that. And the way to do that is that we have paid leaves for all of these other things. And so we do give a lot of paid time off. You know, the average first year employees getting like 58 paid days off first year. Um, and that's a lot, you know, but our productivity is higher than ever. Our results are higher than ever. And why is that? I think it has a lot to do with that su supporting th that people can be fulfilled. And it doesn't mean in working more hours, you know? I just, I just, I'll just continue to just pause, right? I mean, even just the, the awareness and again, the s systematizing the support for individuals who you know are experiencing different levels of stress, different levels of experiences, and how do we how do we take care of them? A, a, a couple of thoughts are going through my head, and I'm curious. I'm curious to get your perspective. A question that we often receive um, is, "Yeah, but can't you be too empathetic?" Mm -hmm. Like. And I'm, and, and I'm, and I always pause, like, and I'll, you know, sometimes write like the, yeah, I mean, this sounds great, but like, can't you be too empathetic? Now I would argue you can't, right? Mm -hmm. Like you, you take care of your people and they take care of you. And so I'm just, I'm kind of curious to get your thoughts on, right? Like, uh, and, and uh, yeah, I'll just, I'll stop with that question. Then I'll ask you the second question. Okay. So <clears throat> I'm deeply empathetic and that gets me in the feels. So I think that there's no maximum to how much I can feel for someone. What I do think is that it's great to have also, it's not the opposite of accountability. So like we also right, build right, in equal right. parts, like empathy, accountability, yes. they're both true. And you think about it in terms of, let's take work out of it for a minute. Think about if you, if you have someone in your life who you love a lot, I'm going to pick one of my children. Okay. I couldn't be more loving and empathetic toward them. But do you think that means that I don't have accountability? Like they right. still have to be accountable to be like kind, respectful human beings. They still have to do what they say they're going to do within reason. Like, of course, they need those guardrails and they excel when they have those guardrails. And the same, you know, I, I don't want to like patronize or make it sound like, you know, like min minimize, you know, what, what employees bring to the table. That's not what I'm saying. But the parallel of equal parts of empathy and accountability is real. They're not opposites. Yeah. yeah. I, 
I love. I love that that's where you went because mm-hmm. I I think so often when people are saying that they're perceiving it as being not holding people accountable mm-hmm. and not you know I'm like well no that's not the same thing it's you can care deeply all. and and hold people accountable. The other thing that I'm 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 thinking is there's there's probably some folks who may be listening to this right now, um, or or they work with somebody who's who would say something like yeah but Beth what if people take advantage of it mm-hmm. like what and it's always interesting to me that the irony is that whenever I observe that kind of phrase, it's almost always in a culture that's very low trust. Right, right, right. It's like there are there's other things we're already observing that are representative of a really low trust culture. Mm-hmm. And and it's it's so interesting to me that like when when I don't know when you when you recognize someone for the value that they bring or the potential that they can bring. When you say, "I believe in you, I trust you," here's the expectations, right? Like, but I'm here to support you, and and I trust that we'll get there. People will meet that moment more often than not, and it's and it's just always interesting to me that the. the it, I think I think many organizations put policies in place for the two or don't put policies in place, right? For the 2% who might take advantage, take advantage of it, right? Who might not use it responsibly, whatever that might mean, or, um, and then you miss out on this opportunity to offer something incredible, right? To the Mm -hmm. people who would really benefit from it. But my, my experience has always been whenever that question gets brought up, yeah, but what, Sarah, what if people, and I'm like, that lack of trust you have in your people I promise you this is not the only place this shows up. And I promise you they feel it and that that has an impact on your culture. And, you know, and I don't know if there's anything like more um, either anecdotal or concrete that you would want to share from your experience of how this has shifted and changed. Right. I mean, you talked about productivity is up, right? I assume engagement is really high, right? All all of that. I mean, because, man, when when you're invested in as a person, it's real easy to then turn around and go, I want to invest back in you. I don't really have a question to that. I'm just curious to hear your thoughts or what connections come up for you as I share that. I think it's one of the most common responses I get when I talk about our benefits or workplace and sometimes even internally, right? As a, as a leadership yeah. team, maybe that question might come up. And what I, what I have to say about that is, um, you know, that address the behavior of the individual. We have such a, you know, I mean, you are the expert, right? And avoiding, you know, the topic of avoiding the hard conversations, right? (laughs) We'll we'll send the email out about like dress code when one person is like struggling with it. (laughs) First of all, let's actually address and hold the person accountable who's doing the thing. But I promise you, if you are worried, like it could be in fact, be the case that someone on a team would take advantage of a benefit. But that person is also the person that has a multitude of other performance issues. Like that's not the one hallmark of the thing that they're causing an issue in. So any person that's going to take advantage, like so our, our benefit of paid caregiver leave, you get four weeks paid off for the acute physical or mental care of a loved one or yourself. The only mm. time you need this benefit is if something tragic has happened. In every case where someone has used this benefit, something really terrible happened in their personal lives and their workplace was like, we've got your back. We see you. You have four weeks paid off to go deal with this thing. And then when you come back, like you didn't burn through any PTO, right? This is yeah. still like... And, and the number one question I get about that benefit, because there's not like one tangible thing that, that is like the first domino, like, okay, yep, now they're yeah. on paid caregiver. Yeah. It's, 
it's a little bit like it could be a lot of things, right? What does that mean? The acute physical or mental care of a loved one or themselves? Well, it means what they think it means. It means that if you need the time to take care of your aging parent going to chemo, your partner who had a stroke, your like whatever. Mm. Okay. And so the question of like, what if someone took advantage of, if someone's going to take advantage of that, they are also going to be the person that is not accountable for other things. So if we just yeah. hold them to the accountable for the transactional things that are easy to hold them accountable for, we don't have to worry about them on this yeah. other stuff. So that's yeah. why accountability is important mm. because then it does build a culture of trust. They're not going to, we're not going to worry about these giant benefits when, if we just can focus on their transactional things, are they meeting their deadlines? Are they doing what they say they're going to do? You know, those type of things. Well said. What, what do you wish, what are the conversations you wish more leaders were having? Like if you, if you could be a little Beth on someone's shoulder, Mm -hmm. just a tiny little Beth, what, what are, what are, well, or maybe let me, let me, let me ask that question maybe a little bit differently um, so that it doesn't come from such a place of judgment. What are the conversations we need to be having now as mm-hmm. we think about moving forward into what the needs are of humans, what the future of work looks like? Because the conversations have shifted. I mean, the needs of the workplace have shifted. I and mean, you know, you you talked earlier about the whole like we need the like personality reveal. I always lovingly say when I see somebody I haven't seen since the before times, I'm always, my first question is always who are you now? Yeah. Like who who are you now? So from from your your perspective and experience, what do you, what do you feel like are the things we need to be thinking about as uh, those of us who are maybe in positions of power and authority who can have influence or what are the needs you're seeing emerge um, or even sustaining that we need to be addressing? Yeah. It's a big question because uh, the variables are changing really quickly. And I feel like the needs of people are, it, it's happening at such a fast pace, the change in workplaces and the change in culture. Um, so it's not like there's one distinct answer, but I, what I yeah. would say is staying really receptive and open. I mean, li- listen to your people. I mean, they, mm-hmm. they, you know, if you have at least enough of a culture where they have a place to tell you, a willingness to tell you, like you said earlier, a, a culture is what your people say it is. It's not a poster. Mm-hmm. It's not aspirational words on a, you know, so, you know, we do an annual employee survey. And at the end, it's, we say, you know, what are three words that describe, you know, our mm. culture. And then we put all of those words in a big word cloud. And of course, the ones that are said the most frequently are the biggest. And and then we hand that word cloud out to every single employee. And every mm. once in a while, there's a word on there that I don't like. And you know what I would love to do? I would love to delete it. I would love to yeah. delete the word. But instead, it's my job to fix the culture, not delete the word. And so I guess mm. it, from like a high level metaphor, don't delete the words, right? Fix the culture. Don't delete the word. Because if you really want to address mm-hmm. it, so, you know, listen to what your people say. I do think mental well-being, you know, I know that's a, that's a big bucket. Yeah. Um, loneliness. I mean, let's, let's just look at the yeah. data that's out there. Addiction is on the rise. Loneliness is on the rise. And um, it, it, it's a constant question for me. What is in the purview of a workplace to solve um, in terms of the human beings? I don't know the answer because, you know, I think there can be, there's a lot of um, figuring this stuff out. People want flexibility and autonomy. I want flexibility and autonomy. So we've created a culture largely around that. It can also sometimes create this polarity that 
um, people feel lonely. They feel isolated, mm-hmm. you know, if, if they're working remotely the whole time. Uh, and so there's this, you know, but polarities are not new. I mean, I think as yeah. human beings, we have that in us, in, in our own selves, right? There's this constant push and pull of what's good for me. What do I want to do? What do I like to do? And I think that then on a larger level comes out in organizations that push and pull. Um, yeah. I think being open-minded, not, not, not being, you know, not thinking we know the answer. And I always, I always think about that little sort of, you know, that microcosm of when the world sort of shut down in 2020 at first, and, and for most of at least a year, that so many organizations did pivot, did figure it out, did do things that they thought they never could have done. And so if we can do that, if we can completely change the way we work and how our people work and where they work from, let's not just throw that concept away. Maybe it looks different today, but we can just completely do things different if we choose to. It's let's not get so set in the way, the way we think it's done. Um, Yeah. Yeah. No, it's awesome. The fix the culture, don't delete the word. That's, that's nice. And it's, it's evolving. Uh, You know, I wish, I wish I could say like, we figured it out. We sure. Yeah. (laughs) But not only do the, the people that work in our teams, you know, it it changes, right? Yeah. We, we tend to have very high employee retention, which is great, but it still changes over time. But the actual individual human beings change. Like I said, I'm a different person than I was four years ago. The the worries that I carry, the stresses that I carry can change by the day. I can be a 10 out of 10 on one day as a leader, and I can be a two out of 10 on some days as a leader. I can be snappy and frustrated and depressed and not open-minded and not resilient, or I could be amazing in all those areas. And so I'm just one person and I have a lot of privilege and I have a lot of access and I have a lot of people that love me. So if I'm that volatile in what I, who I, who I, how I show up, every, everyone could be that. So even if we had a stagnant pool of people, what they, what they shoulder and who, how they show up is different every single day. So we have to be sort of receptive and open, you know, to what that looks like and how to, how to best meet people. It's not like you can't solve it. You can't just be like, okay, we gave them the benefits, right? Or we added the ping pong table or the espresso machine and boom, it is a Mm -hmm. bucket with a hole in the bottom Mm. metaphorically. And you got to pour into it all the time. And it means active listening active work with intention to meet people, to listen to people, to validate people, to see people. And it can be exhausting, especially when you're a person, (laughs) you know, I experienced Mm -hmm. those things too. So it takes a lot of intention. Yeah. Yeah. Beth, as we wind up our time, we could keep talking, I have, you know, but we won't not. Yeah. I gotta let you go and be on your way at some point, but before we break, uh, I would love to hear your answer to our final question that we ask every guest. What was a conversation you had with yourself or someone else that was transformative for you? Um, I, in 2020, started seeking, um, actively seeking therapy because life was so hard. I was going through a divorce. I was leading an organization through crisis. I was living through a pandemic. I was caregiving to three children who never went away, right? Who were there all the time. (laughs) And uh, I got a really great therapist. He's given me uh, so much advice. Um, But I would say that that one of the conversations that sticks with me that I I think about almost every day is um, I, the, the truth is, and I try to be, you know, really, really authentic as a leader and, um, 
and I struggled with some suicidal ideation at that time. And I asked mm-hmm. him mm-hmm. how I could take my own life without hurting my three kids. And he said to mm-hmm. me, um, Beth, I think, you know, you cannot do that. He said, let's focus instead on creating a life you don't want to escape from. And um, I actively think about that every day. How do I create a life I don't want to escape from? What does that mean? When am I most Beth? Um, when do I feel the most seen? When do I feel the most valued? What am I doing? Who am I with? What? How am I spending my time? What am I listening to? And uh, I have to actively remind myself of that every day. And so mm. um, I feel really fortunate that, that I had that support and that I'm on a great path. Um, but I try not to let that conversation get too far from from my mind. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Beth, you're incredible. And you are such an I mean, you really are such an inspiration for me. And I'm so excited to introduce you to our audience so that they can learn about you for people who might be interested in just connecting with you. um, Maybe having you come speak to their organization. What's the best way for people to connect with you? Well, thank you for your kind words. It has been such an honor to be here. Uh, You're one of my idols, as you know. Um, BethShelton.com is the easiest. Um, I, of course, I'm on all the socials under Beth Shelton. Um, it's so, you know, Instagram and LinkedIn. LinkedIn is probably the one I use the most because I like to write. And so it gives me a chance to write those longer uh, pieces. And um, But BethShelton.com is the easiest. Okay. Well, we'll be sure to add that to the show notes. When's, when's the book coming? I, hey, it's a, work, it's a work in progress. <laughs> it's a, uh, you know, it's a, I, a, a lot of scattered uh, writings, sure. a lot of scattered ideas. I just got to funnel that one direction. When, you know, for people I can't, I can't recommend enough, you know, uh, it's not always like going to be consistent, but you know, when Beth has been thinking about something and is pouring her heart out and it's always so compelling. And I think you're just, so, you have such a way with, speaking so honestly and um, eloquently and in a way that is accessible, um, you know, by sharing your own suffering, your own struggles has normalized it for so many people. So um, be sure to connect with Beth. And Beth, thank you so much for saying yes. Oh, thank you for having me. It's such an honor. It really made my day. You're amazing. Likewise. Our guest this week has been Beth Shelton, CEO, Chief Executive Officer of Girl Scouts of Greater Iowa, and what a conversation on what it means and looks like to lead people. I have so many pages of notes. One of the things that I want to just call out was that story she shared about productivity and like, yeah, we know it's, it's, it's going to be less and that's okay. And it almost brings tears to my eyes of what would be possible if when somebody is struggling, when they're suffering and they've committed, you know, they've committed their time and their life, right, to your company and and they're struggling. And then that moment you say, and it's okay. I just think there's something so powerful about that. And we'd love to hear from you what resonated, what came up for you. You can send us a message at podcast at sarahnoelwilson.com. Otherwise, you can always drop me a direct message on social media where my DMs are always open. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a couple ways you can do that. First, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and your preferred podcast platform. 
or you can become and or you can become a patron. You can go to patreon.com slash conversations on conversations where your financial contribution will support the incredible team that makes this, this show possible. Speaking of the team, let's give them some love to our producer, Nick Wilson, our sound editor, Drew Knoll, our transcriptionist, Becky Reinert, and the rest of the Snow Co team. And just a big wholehearted thank you to Beth Shelton for all the amazing work she's doing and will continue to do. This has been Conversations on Conversations. Thank you so much for listening and giving us your time. And remember, when we can change the conversations we have with ourselves and others, we can change the world. So be sure to rest, rehydrate, and I'll see you again next week.